Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me Dr. Tom Osden Schilling to tell us about his book, published by Duke University Press in 2023, titled The Ends of Research, Indigenous and Settler Science After the War in the Woods, which explores the many afterlives of research initiatives that Took, that emerged slowly um, after the War of the Woods, um, which was a whole series of protest and action around anti-logging blockades in Canada and the American Pacific Northwest in roughly the 1990s. That's obviously a massive overgeneralization. Um, but this book really goes into detail about what happened afterwards. Um, how is environmental science being done? How was it done? How is it being understood by different communities of people? Um, so there's a lot to be getting into with this fascinating book. Tom, thank you so much for being here to tell us about it. Thanks for having me, Miranda. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm glad to have you. Before we get into the Canadian woods, could you please introduce yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Uh, sure. So my name is Tom Austin Schilling. I'm a uh, assistant professor of uh, anthropology and the sociology and anthropology department at National University of Singapore. I started writing this book. I mean, the research came out of my uh, PhD dissertation um, while I was training in a, this, this kind of hydra headed program in history, anthropology and science, technology and society. Uh, I mean, when I first started the research, I wasn't even totally sure I wanted to be an anthropologist. Um, I was really interested, not just in environmental research, but in, in science um, per se. Uh, and I, I had also grown up in a, a small town um, in Wyoming that, uh, in truth, is a lot like the, this town Smithers in northwest British Columbia, where I wound up doing most of my fieldwork. Um, and I think that was one of the things that really gravitated or like caused me to gravitate towards this place and, and the people who lived there. Um, I mean, this is a place where... Uh, the, it, this factoid, I'm not totally sure whether this is true or not. Um, 
that I kept on hearing in Smithers as well as in other places around Canada. Um, it has the highest number of PhDs per capita of any city in Canada, even though it's only about 4,000 people and it's 1,000 kilometers north of the American border, a.k.a. where almost all Canadians live. Um, That's a right. lot. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's up there, right? It's this little town in the woods. Um, I didn't yet have the language of uh, amenity migration, this kind of term from sociology to describe why people with, um, uh, you know, advanced educational credentials, you know, post-secondary education um, with career mobility would choose to live in a place um, that is, you know, not necessarily like an urban center. I didn't know that was like a thing or like a question in sociology yet. Um but I was, I was drawn to this place, um, not so much because of the legacy of uh, in, uh, environmental protests, specifically stuff around the war in the woods, um, this kind of this era that many people you know, will certainly tell you. And as I say in the book, certainly hasn't ended yet of direct action protests against clear cut logging and now increasingly against pipeline development. Um, but I was interested in you know, what it was like to be uh, a scientist living in a small town. Right. Um, conducting research projects, um, trying to create a sense of meaning um, around your work, trying to cultivate a sense of community, both with other researchers and with other people around you. And like very frequently, because um, I mean, as uh, as I say in the book, a, a, a lot of the, the non-indigenous researchers um, whom I came to interact with, uh, they they came there very deliberately. I mean, this this place, you know, you, you don't become the, you know the the heavyweight belt holder of PhDs per capita um, for like accidentally right like a lot of people are drawn to this place um, and and I, I wanted to get a sense of what that meant to them and I also wanted to get a sense kind of getting a, ba- a bit more into the wheelhouse of anthropology of how that um, how that played out along um, uh, racial and ethnic lines um, in terms of how people's experiences of trying to craft a sense of place around the research projects, a sense of place around their investments in, in producing knowledge um, was conditioned by um, their experience of whiteness, their experiences of, uh, of indigeneity or, or specific kind of formats of First Nations politics. Um, and it felt like, I mean, I, I really didn't uh, go into the field in British Columbia thinking that I would stay in one particular town. Um, I knew that the, like this British Columbia is an interesting place to study rural research both research conducted by um, non-Indigenous people and uh, research conducted by First Nations people, um, because there have been, um, but there, there's a lot of it um, compared to other places around North America, certainly. Um, there's a lot of um, NGOs that have worked on developing biodiversity metrics for contesting clear-cut logging. Um, there are like fishery scientists. Um, I mean, as I, as I talk about in the book, there are a lot of people who, uh, you know, First Nations people who did like really, really groundbreaking work in uh, digital map making uh, for uh, producing evidence for uh, rights and title claims um, that have, you know, wound up becoming uh, not just key precedents um, in, in legal settings, but, uh, but key models for technical development for indigenous groups doing countermapping projects worldwide. Um, and so I wanted to kind of like just see what this activity looked like on the ground. Um, I, I, I feel like uh, this maybe this is a little bit too expansive for a kind of first answer, but it was it was this kind of broad cluster of questions um, that that initially drew me to this town. And I, in addition to just wanting to get a sense of the the scene, I also wanted to get a sense of how all of these folks were dealing with um, ecological change, 
um, specifically in terms of these massive uh, insect infestations that were killing large areas of forest. Um, I mean, I was starting to get a clue about, you know, big uh, forest fires, um, but essentially how these people were dealing with uh, not just institutional changes, but environmental changes at the same time. Mm. Lots of things to make you curious about this town and go investigate. What then, um, having done this research, being embedded there, what then are some of the key questions you decided to investigate in the book? Um, And how does this fit into kind of particularly, I think, the discipline of anthropology? You mentioned coming from multiple disciplines, but I think perhaps within that particular context, these questions might be especially relevant. Sure. Uh, Well, so... One of the one of the things I eventually realized I was kind of looking at in terms of you know seeing how the social lives of these researchers, um, uh, you know, which they were often you know very very self conscious about kind of cultivating in particular ways how they came to matter to the content of their research. Uh, one of the things that I ultimately came to be really interested in were these kind of uh, long standing anthropological questions about social reproduction. Um, I mean, how do you reproduce a group? Um, that has, uh, you know, a very particular form of life, like a very particular investment in uh, living in a particular place um, and, you know, having a particular kind of relationship to a land, like in this case, this you know, really beautiful um, kind of intermontane uh, forest area high up in the mountains. Um, and how these dynamics of social reproduction um, and institutional reproduction were playing out differently for white and First Nations communities. Uh, one of the reasons I thought it was uh, particularly interesting to study this um, in uh, in British Columbia is not just because um, there have been so many uh, like famous conflicts, like the War in the Woods that we mentioned right at the top of the top of the podcast, um, but also because th- these communities are um, I- in different ways. They're constantly thinking about kind of the their own precariousness. They're thinking about the limits to their potential survival, their potential reproduction. And I feel like this is a, this is a set of questions around, you know, um, what happens when a when a when a social group um, fails to reproduce itself. Uh, these are questions that have not usually been applied to scientific groups, um, where you might have sociologists of science that are looking at how different modes of pedagogy or different kind of ideological orientations cause people to pursue certain kinds of research projects. Uh, so you get this weird sort of blurring between institutional reproduction and social reproduction um, because uh, this kind of investment in a sense of community, um, both for white and First Nations uh, um, people, was so overlain with um, their, their anxieties about the precariousness of their, uh, their research institutions. Um, and, you know, specifically with, uh, with some of the uh, indigenous map makers that I was working with, um, these are people who participated in an early area of uh, what we would call like capacity building. So basically these kind of short-term government grants that are meant to, uh, you know, bring some people into classrooms, uh, like get people some kind of technical credentials so that they can eventually, um, you know, start running, say, like a resource management office or like a con- like what would have been called like a consultation office at the time. Um, but these, as, as people who have studied um, capacity building in... Uh, in resource poor uh, rural areas have often shown like both like first nations and non it's really really difficult like after the initial period of investment to keep these things going right and so one of the broad questions that this looped into for me um was okay so these people are doing like 
different kinds of research out in the woods. And research is the word that I use other than science, partly because science is this very sort of freighted term. Um, it has a lot of kind of implicit like settler colonial overtones in terms of, you know, trying to dominate nature, or trying to kind of prove mastery. Um, and I wanted to signal the fact that um, indigenous researchers that I worked with, uh, they're often doing things that are like very much influenced by the readings in ecological theory, um, but they're like very explicitly kind of working towards other goals. Um, and I wanted to emphasize the, the systematicity and the rigor of the work that they were doing without kind of using this big S word science. So to, to kind of bring it back a little bit, um, as I was starting to think of these folks as, um, you know, particular kinds of communities of researchers, uh, one of the sets of questions that I really wanted to, to try to bring into a, a different kind of focus through my work um, comes maybe a bit more from the anthropology of science or from uh, certainly from science technology studies where, you know, there's been this longstanding interest in the relationship between knowledge and democracy, like whatever either of those terms mean, right? Um, and in British Columbia, this is a relationship that is rendered explicit constantly. Right. This especially beginning in the 1990s, this idea that, uh, you know, we are going to solve all of these conflicts. You know, this is the like different government offices saying we're going to get we're going to solve all these conflicts around logging around, you know, what the government would say is the most rational and efficient use of forests, like cut them down in huge swaths and just replant everything. Um, we're going to solve this by gaining more knowledge, right, more knowledge about effects on biodiversity, more knowledge about, you know, habitats, more knowledge about ecological functioning. Um, and to a degree, um, for a time, um, indigenous actors were adopting some of this language as well, right? They're saying, okay, so this idea that, um, you know, you can make a moral claim on how governance works in a region um, by, by kind of framing what you do in terms of, of knowledge gathering and knowledge management, right? And so this is an era where you're seeing uh, this rise of a kind of discourse of knowledge-based governance, um, that uh, there were a, a range of different kinds of state investments in, both for white people and for, for First Nations groups. Um, but in the early 2000s, you see a lot of those investments get, get cut back. Um, and uh, I mean, the, at, in a rhetorical level, people are saying like, oh, this is immoral. You're cutting these programs that you, you just started. You're uh, kind of divesting from all of these, uh, these precarious kind of training programs or these long-term research projects that you said were so important. Like you basically, you know, set up. These are people kind of criticizing the government. Um, you set up to show that, that you care about the kind of democratic futures of these areas. Um, but by sticking around with, with some of these researchers to see how they've kind of evaluated these claims over the years, I, I wanted to get a, a, a more granular sense of the sort of tail of that divestment, right? This, uh, you know, you make a big promise about how, you know, knowledge is going to, you know, uh, lead to more, a, a sort of like moral responsible stewardship, um, uh, something that might aim towards what we would now call like, you know, reconciliation perhaps. Um, you know, what does it mean for that to be like very rapidly kind of clawed back as soon as a new administration takes over. So in that sense, it felt like I was looking at um, social reproduction at a kind of local scale um, in terms of how it played out in research communities um, among like predominantly white and predominantly First Nations folks, but also, uh, you know, a, a sort of morality of governance and how it gets linked uh, or how it, how it draws unevenly upon um, investments in scientific research as a way of saying, okay, like, we have, uh, you know, this particular kind of approach, 
to developing resources and to managing, you know, and, and fencing off um, uh, natural areas. Um, and we have you know, this, this kind of approach to uh, showing that like the way that we are dealing with, with First Nations claims, with First Nations governing bodies is moral, and we're going to show you the data. Um, but we are going to take this very sort of on again, off again approach to like actually investing in securing this data long term. Um, and that those are essentially the main questions that were that were driving me. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, I think there's a bunch of things I want to ask about in more detail now that we've laid that foundation. I think the first one um, is sort of taking two things you briefly mentioned and putting them together. The idea that indigenous community or indigenous scientists, indigenous researchers mm. are perhaps working to different ends than yeah. white researchers coming in. Um and this idea of these projects being set up with all these big promises that then very much um, change quite rapidly and in quite uncertain ways for those who have become involved in them. Mm-hmm. If we take these things together and think about, especially you document this in sort of the 90s, uh, immediately after the war in the woods, kind of lots of things change and then seem to get rolled back again. How did this sort of environment of uncertainty impact white and First Nations researchers differently? How did that, in, in some ways, everyone's facing the same kind of uncertainty with funding cuts, but right. not quite with the same impact, right? Right. Absolutely. And I think that's where this idea of, you know, were you born in this place or did you did you move there because you had a PhD in biology and you wanted to be able to ski, ski year round, right? Like to, to be a little bit flippant um, towards my, my non-Indigenous interlocutors. Like that's where that question really kind of comes to bear, um, because uh, to be quite frank, um, a lot of the, uh, uh, the non-indigenous researchers they landed on their feet, or they thought, okay, well, I'll go somewhere else where I can get a job. Like I already have these networks, I have this this mobility that drew me up to this place in the first place, and I also have um, a lot of institutional connections, right? Um, and I can kind of port some of the ideas that I've developed with some of my scientific collaborators into something like an NGO or something like an independent research group. And I have this sort of vision of how science can continue to affect governance um, that I can still kind of uh, start to push forward by, uh, by initiating other kinds of programs, right? There are other places for this sort of investment to go. So I have a lot of these, uh, a lot of my um, non-Indigenous interlocutors and, uh, and to be frank, like a lot of this work is, is very, I mean, when you take away the comparative angle, um, a lot of this work is very inspiring, right? Um, these are people who lost their jobs and figured out how to continue to um, do uh, pretty impactful work uh, in terms of framing local policies or coming up with uh, basically new ways to sue the government into um, maintaining its like earlier commitments to you know hitting certain kinds of environmental thresholds. But they could kind of do that because they already knew how to speak the game, right? A lot of these folks were happy to leave government. Um, and so in that sense, uh, they were uh, they were like in government, but not of it while they had these formal jobs. And then after they were laid off or after their divisions were downsized, um, then that meant that they could continue to do this sort of uh, this activism work, whether collaborating with NGOs um, with, uh, with greater gusto, right? Um, so in this sense... Uh, a lot of these people um, ha- are, are quite happy to work as consultants. Um, and they have, you know, I, I want to give credit where credit's due in terms of 
mitigating environmental impacts of uh, you know broad scale resource planning. They've they've been they've been quite impactful, and they have developed models of um, orienting research towards specific kinds of policy goals from these much more peripheral. Uh, uh, standpoints like from from outside of government, they've been they've developed models that other groups around North America have taken up with with uh, with with considerable success, right? So they see themselves as I mean they see themselves as special as a kind of uh, uh, policy oriented science engine um, that other people can learn from. Now, if you look at the experiences of some of my main Gixan, Gitnyao, and Wasuot interlocutors. Um, these are, um, these are people who were sometimes, you know, elites within their own communities, um, but were otherwise, you know, drawn into these like very, very challenging jobs because, uh, you know, they had, uh, maybe a, a high school diploma or they had a college degree, or they had like a particular facility with map making. They were drawn into these arrangements, like through like much, much more sort of specific, like deeply personal pathways. Um, these were people who had maybe worked as a, a, like field assistants during research for these really, really important uh, uh, land claims trials um, that uh, Canadians will for, uh, refer to as uh, the Delgamook trials, um, where uh, uh, the claimants um, who are uh, Dixon, Wet'suwet'en people, um, uh, named after uh, all of the chiefs who are the main claimants in the trial, um, they sued the uh, Canadian government um, basically for control of their lands, right? This is a, this is a, at the time it concluded it was the longest and most expensive legal trial in Canadian history. Um, and it was, you know, it was literally playing out right in this, in this town, um, essentially alongside all of these other uh, pretty, um, you know, experiments in policy-oriented ecological research undertaken by white researchers that were uh, significant in their own right, right? So you have, you know, these two very innovative communities um, and all of a sudden, you know, the funding is withdrawn or specific positions are withdrawn. And the, uh, the kinds of critical mass that had been established through these capacity building programs um, for, for and people, like funding for um, like a research office Funding for like GIS uh, mapping training sessions for um, for First Nations youth. I mean, these were very very precarious programs anyway, right? And they relied on um, a whole lot of like really developed kinship networks. They relied on a whole lot of personal like uncompensated labor, um, and uh, it it was just very very difficult to keep these things moving. And for a lot of these folks, if they wanted to, like, they didn't automatically have these kinds of networks that they could kind of slip into. And the folks who did wind up establishing these networks, uh, as I talk about in the book, um, some of them wound up feeling fairly alienated, right? Because, you know, if you have essentially developed professional networks with um, First Nations and non-First Nations people as a kind of component of work that you were doing with your own First Nations, um, there are certainly people within your community who can see that as, a, you know, like an unfair benefit, right? Um, these are... People who, you know, the moment you get a college degree, like a lot of demands can be placed on you. Um, they have really, really challenging roles. Um, they're they're thrust into these. Uh, um, they're thrust into like, say, a role as like a concert, a consultation officer, right? Where you're the person who has to interface with the forestry, uh, like a, a, a 
a logging company or with a government office when um, your uh, your First Nations government is still trying to figure out kind of like like how their office is supposed to work, right? So they're they're kind of inventing this as they go. And then when you go through this period where you have some decent funding to all of a sudden having that completely cut out or all of a sudden having um, some of the initial agreements that you were set up abandoned because a new um, government administration comes in. Um, I mean, this is this is really, really disruptful. It's not just like, OK, I need to find another stream of income. It's like I need to kind of rebuild this world from scratch. Right. And I need to lean even heavier or even more heavily on my kin networks and on um, like all of this uncompensated labor. Um, that's already really, really strained, um, even when the funding was relatively good, right? So those were kind of the first things that I really started to focus on there. Hmm. Yeah, those are some pretty stark differences, um, even from an initial look. I'm curious about um, the white researchers who don't have those kinship ties, who are flippantly or not, there is some amount of truth to the idea of kind of flying in for um, amenity seeking, as you mentioned earlier. How did this kind of ability to, in some senses, leave if you want to, right, make things um, decide where to be, having more professional mobility, how did kind of having that option or even having used that option to get here, how did that shape this community's sense of belonging? So, so I mean, that's something I feel like my, um, my sense of that or my feelings about that have kind of changed over time. Um, because initially like the comparison was so stark, um, partly just because you have this massive income gap, this massive wealth gap, right? Um, because like I said, a lot of these people have PhDs. A lot of these people have options. They've worked elsewhere. Um, but it, it's also as, as much as some of them can be a little bit tone deaf to some of the conversations that are happening, um, among first nations, uh, researchers with whom they occasionally, um, collaborate, like not as frequently as they probably should, but occasionally. Um, these are folks who, uh, you know, are probably appropriately self-conscious of their, of their privilege, right? These are people who know that not everybody there can leave as easily as they do. Um, and so they feel like they have to work extra hard to justify their place there, right? Sometimes it can be a little bit cringe um, in terms of, you uh, you know, it's when they talk about community, it's community with a capital C a lot of the time. Right. Um, but they also they do do a lot of stuff um, because you have so many different researchers cycling through, whether it's for a, like white researchers um, for a uh, for a summer field program um, or uh, just, you know, maybe a collaborator who's going to be in the area for a few weeks. Uh they, and even for me, I mean, they made this big sales pitch to like, ah, oh, you should, you know, it's, it's harder, but like, you should really like base your career here. Like there's so much you can do, you know, it's like, yeah, you have to work harder to kind of produce, uh, like durable institutional attachments. You have to kind of resign yourself to a certain degree of flexibility and uncertainty. Um, you have to get much more accustomed to surviving on uh, soft money, right? So like you live from grant to grant. Um, if you want to, if you want to be able to do the research that you want to do, right. Stuff that is intellectually satisfying, but also like impactful in terms of how it shapes, um, environmental policy or discourse around environmental policy. Um, but yeah, at first I felt a little bit cynical about it, but then I realized, you know, these people are working really hard, but again, it's very deliberate, right? Um, I mean, a lot of these people have kids now, um, who have, subsequently moved into similar kinds of careers. 
Um, and it's, it's harder to kind of dismiss them as outsiders. Um, they're extremely critical of uh, another, let's say, you know, anthropological type that one might encounter while looking at environmental governance in uh, kind of rural First Nations contexts, which is the, the fly-in consultants, right? I mean, they really, really distinguish themselves from non-Indigenous scientists who would like fly in, like be the, uh, the official expert on a project for a few weeks and then just kind of, you know, never come back again. Because they're aware that in, in many, many rural um, communities throughout North America, like th- this is the kind of expert that most people know about, right? And so when they're trying to craft a sense of place, again, admittedly, like with this uh, tremendous degree of privilege, with these, you know, already established, really robust um, uh, professional and intellectual networks, um, they're, they're trying to not do that, right? They're trying to not be the sort of fly-in folks who tell a you know community what's wrong with them and then leave, um, but in the meantime, like there's still this gulf between them and um, the First Nations people who uh, were essentially recruited into careers in research who just they don't have that kind of privilege, they don't have that kind of option um, to to kind of reframe their ties. Um, however, like that kind of flexibility isn't celebrated in, in in the same way, right? Because the need is so urgent, right? The need for um, data that can facilitate certain kinds of claims and that can facilitate, um, you know, direct action essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and as you said, this is something that, uh, researchers on both sides are often aware of and discussed with you in mm-hmm. your research and did various things to try and work together to, to repair some of these perceptions of, um, rupture or harm I was fascinated in one of the methods you talk about for this, um, because to be honest, that kind of thing, different communities trying to get along with each other. um, I was sort of expecting examples of workshops, of conferences, of kind of talking based things. And you talk about in the book, I mean, there is some of that, but also documents, documentary Mm -hmm. practice are part of this as well. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about that aspect. Sure. So, I mean, to kind of go back a little bit to the very first question, you know, how did I wound up in this? Uh, how did I wind up in this area in the first place? It's mainly because I was interested in maps, um, and I had some of these you know, really poorly formed questions about how a particular approach to mapping an area makes you imagine it as a as a certain kind of place. Um, and then I realized when I got to this town, there's many different kinds of map making. Um, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about, about these techniques, um, whether it was transect mapping, which is this, you know, really, um, kind of quick and dirty sort of technique that you can use, um, in order to get like a statistically significant, um, kind of sampling of objects, like along a linear path. If you're, if, if you're trying to do like an environmental survey about like, oh, what kinds of species might you have in an area? Are there archeological find like, uh, significant sites, that sort of thing. Um, so I start, I, I went up there thinking I would learn about techniques, right? Um, because I'd done all this science technology studies stuff. Uh, you know, I was, I've done history of science stuff. I was, I was like all trained to like ask these really annoyingly detailed questions about techniques and epistemology, um, and whatnot. And, and I, I did that, but I also got up there and I realized that, oh, it's also very specific, like documents that people can point to. It's like this one that people have continued to contribute to over the years, or this particular document that, um, 
you know, maybe means a, a lot to one group, but, but um, is kind of rejected by another group. And that wound up being, and I mean, there were, there were a couple of specific things I talk in the book. One was this um, community-based land, uh, land management plan, um, which I, again, like British Columbia likes to, to kind of pride itself on being a, a trendsetter in different modes of environmental governance. Um, this was one of the world's first um, uh, community-based uh, land and resource management plans that was uh, articulated um, in like Baroque detail um, by a, uh, a team of uh, mostly non-specialists that were drawn together from throughout the community um, that was assembled over the course of several years and then was contributed to um, government policymakers um, ostensibly as this kind of robust instrument of, of uh, land use policy. Um, and uh, so I talk about that in, in a chapter, um, but it was something that had this, this, this kind of like totemic importance for a lot of the researchers that I, that I came to know there, even though, you know, at this point, the document's like 25 years old. Like so many people ask me, have you read it? Like, do you understand the goals? Um, you know, like, do you understand how our research projects contribute to this? And I thought, you know, like this, this, this thing has like, basically the, um, the government administration who took it, um, they basically were like, oh, okay, so you want the provincial park here? Cool. We're going to ignore everything else in this report. I and mean, that's a simplification, but it, it, it continued to be important for people. Right. Um, in a way that I, I didn't really know how to, how to deal with. Right. It's like this idea that the document persisted even outside of its uh, kind of um, ostensible period of uh, kind of formal meaning as a governance document, that's something that I wound up becoming really attracted to. Uh, I mean, really kind of drawn to as a, as a puzzle, right? Mm. Like how is this? Um, I mean, I've other, um, other people uh, have, you know, talked about similar kinds of things like fantasy documents um, in the context of like cold war planning, right? Like, um, a document for like uh, the sort of city infrastructure that's never going to be built, but um, actually kind of orients the imaginations of mm -hmm. uh, a lot of different kinds of researchers and planners. Um, a uh, historian of uh, cartography who's brilliant named uh, Bill Rankin talks about zombie documents mm -hmm. as these things that people keep on contributing to, even though like the project is kind of dead. Mm -hmm. Right. And so he does that as a way of saying, you know, it's, it's so easy for us to talk about networks as if they are kind of constantly dynamic and constantly alive when sometimes the things they build outlive them. And then sometimes, you know, like one's alive while the other is kind of hibernating for a while to put it loosely. And, and I realized that this was actually a really useful way to think about how um, legal documents and the associated uh, um, kind of research artifacts that are compiled for a, uh, a land claims case, like uh, the Delgamuk and Gizdewe trial, um, how these uh, meaningfully orient, um, not just the research practices, but like, frankly, like the, the, the lives, like the outlooks of uh, First Nations people, whether you're talking about researchers, whether you're talking about people who have investments in um, particular ideas of uh, self-determination, um, it, it made me realize that, oh, okay, like all these things I've been learning about technique, like if you draw that out over a long time scale, um, then suddenly you have this much richer way of thinking about how, uh, you know, it's not just like, it, like, is it efficacy or is it affect, right? It's like, it can, it, it kind of, it can kind of toggle back and forth between the two, right? Like a document might not have uh, teeth yet. 
Um, mm -hmm. But you might keep working on it with the sense that it eventually might, right? And in a very pragmatic sense, um, even if um, a document's, uh, let's say, its eventual sort of reality as a tool for policy or as a kind of repository of scientific knowledge, even if it is in doubt, um, it can still uh, it can still orient really important uh, everyday research practices, specifically in terms of facilitating um, forms of training, facilitating certain kinds of collaboration. And, you know, if these documents, if you're introduced to a particular document as, you know, this thing that died an untimely death, but we're the ones that are going to try to bring it back, um, then, you know, all of a sudden, like, there's this kind of emotional charge to your participation in a research community. It's not just a kind of epistemic mm -hmm. orientation. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, there's a kind of ethical investment as well. Um, mm -hmm. And I wanted to, I mean, one of the things that I found so interesting about thinking about documents um, was that it, it allowed me to kind of think these, uh, to keep these different kinds of investments um, within the same frame, right? Mm. Um, and I think uh, maybe the, the, the most, like in addition to the, the um, uh, almost exclusively white-led um, planning meetings um, and scuffles that led up to the, uh, the creation of this uh, land and resource management plan that I mentioned earlier, the, the one that was really uh, important to me for that was uh, the Gitniao Constitution, um, which is a document that was produced in the, um, I think, 2009 by the Gitniao First Nation. Um, and it oriented all kinds of really important research practices um, and uh, political activities, even though, uh, you know, while I was there, it, it really didn't have any kind of formal recognition by the British Columbian government, right? Um, did that mean it didn't matter? Did it mean like, it's like so how do, you, how do you deal with that kind of document? Um, and how do you deal with uh, uh, the kinds of social lives that it, it, it sorts of sutures together? Um, I mean, it means that you have to you have to think about the precarious of uh, because the documents um, precarious, you have to think about the precariousness of that relationship kind of, you know, from Jump Street. Right. Um, and so it allowed me to 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 keep those questions in view, even as I got to do all the dorky kind of history of science, you know, STS stuff about, you know, uh, about documents. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I think it is a really interesting thing to see the role of documents in this sort of scuffle determination of identity um, with all these complexities. I'd love to ask a bit about um, something you mentioned a, a little bit earlier, and I'd like to talk about it more kind of now that we have more understanding of um, of some of the tangled threads here. So you mentioned the difficulty um, for First Nation researchers in transitioning from the kind of properly funded things to the more contract work. Mm -hmm. And as well, just now, the difficulty in the creation of these documents that are really important, but don't necessarily link to practical things or don't necessarily link to goals that seem now to be possible. So what are some of the ways that in this context of tricky um, consultant contractual work um, of tricky white led, not necessarily aligned with First Nations goals, how have 
First Nations researchers found complex, nuanced forms of meaning and belonging in being researchers, in that being a strong component of their work and identity. Right. Uh, I mean, I, I th- the simple answer is in lots of different ways. Um, this is this is a specific area in which I really hesitate to generalize because um, I mean the format of my book is is fairly unique and that I focus so closely on the lives of just a couple people um, and I know that their experiences are extremely unique um, and one of the things that I, I try to emphasize especially towards the end of the book when I started when uh, other people who I had not really thought about as being connected to my study came up in conversation, partly because um, pipeline protests um, had kind of exploded onto the uh, the national news right before COVID, um, was that, you know, the working in research, um, getting uh, a job that, you know, in some spaces had a, a, an elite status associated with it. Um, in other um, spaces um, came with just this overwhelming pressure to uh, kind of mediate between um, a whole bunch of different kinds of disputes, um, both between uh, diverse First Nations governing bodies and individual people um, and, you know, within First Nations institutions themselves. Um, one of the things that I, I really came to appreciate about my uh, my main interlocutor's reflections on the senses of meaning that they got from research, um, not just in terms of how it meant to their own lives, but like how this research mattered to um, governance, is that they tended to be a lot more circumspect um, in terms of like just what any of it might mean, right? I mean, then this that gets directly to your question about. Uh, um, contract-based research, right? This thing that is a little bit of a dirty word, right? Like you're taking money from a pipeline company in order to go like do research that might be used to contest the pipeline. Um, the thing that um, the, the, the older researchers would tell me was that, you, you know, you don't know what this will eventually uh, turn into, right? There's so many uncertainties here. It's really presumptuous to uh, assume that you can kind of draw a direct line between a particular uh, research project, a particular finding, and a particular kind of political impact. Um, so you you kind of have to figure out how to orient yourself in the field, and you have to keep working, right? Because the landscape is constantly changing. There are always people who can be brought into the field and, and trained, and like they might be useful for other things as well. Um, and I, I think that... Uh, it, this was something I found quite interesting because, uh, I mean, so much of the anthropological literature on, you know, First Nations um, uh, activism is focused on direct action. Um, there were several anthropologists working in Northwest British Columbia while I was up there who were um, spent most of their time at some of these blockades um, near uh, pipeline construction sites. Um, and, you know, their work is, is very interesting, especially interview work that they've done with um uh, with some of the leaders of, uh, of these, of these camps, people who were, uh, you know, they led marches and like they inspired, um, uh, sympathetic protests in response to some of their arrests that, you know, have had like national political consequences. Um, but, you know, I found that by spending time with, um, with, with senior 
people, like people who had gone through several different phases of research. They had, uh, you know, basically figured out how to get, uh, kind of make ends meet through, um, you know, working, like working other jobs and doing research on the side or like getting, like going from one particular grant to another, um, that in some ways they had both a clearer, but also a more flexible idea of kind of what self-determination might eventually mean and what the role of land-based knowledge work like mapping um, could mean in terms of contributing to it. Um, and I think one of the, one of the things that was really helpful in, in, uh, in, in, in spending so much time with them and, and thinking about this with them is that, you know, all of these people have, have spent substantial time working in the logging industry, right? These are by and large are the only jobs that are up there. Right. And so they, I mean, they think there are better and worse ways to log. There are relatively few of them who you will encounter who think that there shouldn't be any logging anywhere. They certainly want to have a hell of a lot more say over, you know, who gets to pick where to log and how much. Right. Um, but they've, you know, like a lot of people in small towns, um, including my white interlocutors, um, they've had to, they've, they've worked many different kinds of jobs. And so their sense of meaning is, um, it, I think maybe it's oriented uh, along longer horizons. Um, and that's something that I found uh, kind of really refreshing to think with, right? They had this, a little bit of a wry sense of detachment um, while, uh, you know, conducting this pipeline mapping project, or a project to map an alternative path um, for a proposed pipeline um, so that it would be on the books. And so that, you know, if a pipeline was uh, eventually proposed, they could say, well, we, like we suggested this one, and if people are protesting, that's because you ignored us, right? Um, you know, I felt like it was important to challenge the sort of uh, predominant narrative that you would get in a lot of uh, a lot of academic and a lot of activist circles that any kind of engagement is is total complicity. Um, I think that I mean there are people on that side who have very good reasons to be skeptical of any kind of dealing, um, but by working with senior researchers who have just gone through so many different phases of life. Um, you get the sense that, uh, you know, nothing is perfect, right? Like there are so many different things that need to happen and that research is a way to kind of bring people together and to continue to accumulate really important knowledge and experience on the land that can be useful to future conflicts. And we don't know what the shape of those conflicts will be yet, right? That was really the the kind of sense of meaning that I, I kind of got drawn into is this, this much, much more circumspect sense. No, that that's fascinating. And I think it does speak to those wider debates happening all over the place about complicity um, and what that means and what information is used for. Um, but I think it's the point you made about the longer time horizons that I'd like to pick up in my next question, because I was really fascinated by um, part of the book that talked about one of the challenges with contractual work is kind of well, what happens when the contract is over? If all this right. knowledge has been documented and accumulated, but then the contract's over, kind of what happens? And right. you discuss in the book um, a particular instance that really mm. stuck in my mind where researchers were trying to kind of keep the links going between even if it wasn't their contract that got extended, kind of someone else's and being able to pass on the knowledge despite right. the lack of institutional support. But you raised the important question in the book that I'm hoping you can talk about, that this knowledge is often about land, but right. especially if this knowledge is being 
collected, documented um, by white researchers in a very kind of white Western scientific paradigm, especially, and passed on within that particular tradition to other white researchers. I mean, how do you pass on land and knowledge of land that is contested in terms of ownership? What, right. what exactly is being transferred in these longer time horizons and often between generations? That's that's a, that's a, that's a nice way to frame something that I kind of dance around in the book. Um, it's, I mean, the simple answer is that many things are being passed on um, and that what might look like institutional reproduction or even just the, the continuance of, or the, the continued accumulation um, into a, a kind of body of knowledge, um, or, you know, just someone kind of hiring somebody else and maintaining a sort of like more sort of intimate social reproduction, it can kind of move back and forth between those things, right? It's like, um, if you have the sort of, uh, you know, if a, if, a, if a person is replaced, right, um, then in a sense, the knowledge continues, but maybe the knowledge kind of lives on its own for a little while, and then someone comes in and takes over, right? So this, this question about what is passed on, like precisely what it is, is constantly changing, right? Um, and specifically because um, the kinds of questions that initially led people into the field, uh, and I'm talking specifically about my, my interlocutors, these forest ecologists who set up research installations to study um, the kind of long-term impacts of selective harvesting methods as opposed to clear cutting back in the early nineties. Um, I mean, when they were there, they were to, to a large degree, they were asking commercial questions. It's like, is this viable? Like, is this something we can pitch to the, to the provincial government as a kind of program to enforce amongst, uh, amongst logging companies? Um, and in the meantime, like, can we use this to, to kind of create an, ar uh, an architecture for other experiments about biodiversity, about habitat change, about species succession, and so on. Um, but over time, um, they built up this data set, which became a, uh, and, and this, this kind of broader sort of uh, kind of web of experiments um, that wound up being really, really useful for other kinds of researchers who didn't care about selective harvesting at all, but really wanted to study the long-term effects of, uh, I mean, of climate change on, on, on forest succession, right? And so, in a sense, what these people were passing on was just commitment and continuity, right? That like someone needed to have been paying attention so that somebody else could come in with a different set of questions coming from a different social space and feel like, okay, there's something coherent here. There is like, there are people that I can talk to who have like kinds of knowledge that I can translate into my own domain, um, even if they like initially cared about other things, right? So in a sense, it becomes a kind of caretaking relationship um, that, you know, other people are going to use it and you have to, you know, you have to take good care of it, whatever that may mean within your particular frame. Um, and you needed to have been paying close enough attention that other people who come in to take over where you left off or to take over and move things in a completely different direction, that they can, they can do their jobs with confidence, right. Or that they can feel that like, this is, this is a site that, that means something. Mm. Right. And, uh, I, I didn't feel like I had, uh, like, I had a hard time situating this in the anthropological literature. I felt like this is something that anthropologists should care about. 
Um, but in that, uh, in, in, in that chapter in particular, where I'm thinking about the research forest, I wound up thinking mostly with, with, with Jacques Derrida, right? Mm. Um, I know anthropologists will think about hauntology and ghosts and whatnot, but this, I didn't really get into the ghost stuff because it's, you know, this, this is a, this is a kind of commitment that one could articulate, uh, like right back to that, like broad overarching question that I asked about, okay, like, like if you're making a moral claim about governance, like how you care about um, how you care for knowledge matters, right? And how you care for the structures through which knowledge reproduces itself, that matters. And yet you're always going to have this kind of undecidable element where when things are being handed off, right? When you're trying to pass on this sense of investment um, in order for that investment to be meaningful to other people, to other generations, or however you want to frame like whoever it is that's different, like they need to do something different with it, right? And so I tried to call attention to th that sort of simultaneity of continuity and transformation um, because it felt like, okay, th this is why this matters to these people. Um, and I will say like when I was first, um, it, it, I mean, th this is a case where, you know, the, the fact that writing a, an, anthrop uh, an anthropology monograph, like the fact that it takes so long can be, can be kind of a good thing because when I was in the field, um, the engagement between my uh, my white interlocutors and First Nations people, I mean, it, it was sporadic. Like several folks, especially the senior folks, had, had done a lot um, in the in the 90s. Um, but for a variety of reasons, they hadn't hadn't done nearly as much stuff since then. Um, and then all of a sudden um, there was this really, really, really important uh, decision that came down in 2014. Um, while I was essentially in the middle of my field work uh, called the, uh, the Chilcotin decision. Um, and this was essentially the first proper award of uh, um, First Nations rights and title to, uh, to a group in British Columbia uh, since the beginning of the colonial era, like not through like a, a kind of treaty process, like a group went to court, they proved a claim and they got land, right? And so all of a sudden the attitude of um, the entire forest service completely shifted right because here was this it wasn't just like oh okay we need to honor this land it was oh okay like all of these land claims might eventually go through and we can't be calling all of the shots here anymore we can't just do this thing where you know we're politely asking for people's opinion and then and then kind of ignoring them um we might like not too far down the road like if people take this precedent and kind of go forward with it um, in other places, including um, including on Gixan territories where this research forest was based, um, we might have to like really meaningfully collaborate with these folks. Like we might have to like listen to what they want. We should start figuring out how to build those relationships. And again, like I don't want to throw any of my non-indigenous interlocutors under the bus. Um, this was stuff that a lot of them, um, you know, they a lot of them worked out really hard. I mean, they had served. Some of them had served as expert witnesses during land claims trials. Um, pretty much all of them saw themselves as advocates. Um, but it was really the kind of younger generations of uh, researchers, including the person who took over this research forest, who really, really like just, just totally changed how she approached um, the, uh, the group in question because she, she went in like not so much with uh, like, okay, I'm the one who set up the experiment and I'm going to, you know, uh, be really vocal and like kind of t share with them how it's working and like get their thoughts. It's like, I'm going to go in there and kind of tell them that like, I don't know what I want to do here. What do you want to do? Like, so 
in that sense, like she was taking over and, and her, um, the, uh, her mentor, like the person who had set up the research forest and managed it for all those years, he was really, really supportive of that, right? Because he had essentially taken a different approach, um, like a, a slightly more hands-off approach other than, um, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, information sessions and so on, because that was kind of what people did at the time, right? But he was very, very approving that like this, his successor was uh, moving things in a very different direction, right? And so that felt like, okay, this is the kind of like, simultaneous change in continuity that I want to, I want to call attention to here. And it's still not mm. clear, like what's eventually going to happen there. Right. Well, but I think now with this, we have a much better idea of kind of what to look for, right. And how to understand the different aspects of it. Um, right. And it's exactly on that last point of kind of the, something that's already been there. So it's very similar uh, continuity, but there's also an element of change. You mentioned it earlier, um, transect mapping techniques, which are there. They're pretty established. And yet you also talk about in the book that they might offer alternative ways of thinking about something, creating new meanings out of land and how it's used. So how how might transect mapping also be a site of both continuity and change? So uh, that's that's a nice way to phrase that. Um, I mean, the first thing I was drawn into there was kind of my own sense of surprise that we weren't mapping trails. And this, you know, my uh, my senior interlocutor, um, uh, Darlene Vey, who's a brilliant, brilliant Gixan mapper um, and, and quite famous. I, I, I hope that's clear from the book. Like she's she's globally famous as a as a First Nations mapper, um, and. You know, she was she was kind of like, okay, you, you poor sap. Like all the trees have been cut down. Like what do you, like what do you think happened to the trails, right? Um, does it mean that we don't have anything there that we care about? No, like we care about this land a lot. Um, as a, she had this kind of interesting lineage um, where she was uh, part Gitsan, part Gitanyao, um, and you know she has a responsibility by virtue of being a member of. Uh, um, uh, getting your house group to, to care for land and to, to be able to pass it on to future generations. And does that mean, you know, like kind of throwing up your hands after this kind of like broad swath of development has come through? Um, and you're like, no, absolutely not. It means that, you know, you go through and kind of catalog stuff. You figure out how to like get people out onto the land and get them to care about this stuff so that maybe they keep doing it after she retires or after she dies. Um, and, you know, you, you, you work with, people who were there to work with. Like I, I was part of her project in that regard. Right. She's like, okay, you like, we need help. Like you can help me do this. Um, you can kind of tell other people that this is, this matters in this way. And she, and in that sense, she's collaborated with a lot of people. Right. Um, and so the transect, uh, I mean, (laughs) any archeologist or any kind of, um, field biologist, like they're, they're probably like kind of scratching their chin, wondering like why I think this is so interesting. Um, that like this, this it's just a kind of mapping that you do. Like you, you count your steps, you walk in a straight line. You are, you're not like looking for interesting stuff. You're looking for stuff next to the line. Right. Um, and it, it, it like, it's it, anti-romantic, right. Compared to how someone who hasn't spent much time in the field, uh, doing research like on first nations territories for first nations, political goals. Um, if, like if you came in with like a little bit of a romantic notion, I mean, like my, um, uh, my 
one of the other First Nations mappers who was with me, like this uh, this man in his late fifties, um, who had done a lot of hunting. He's like, "Aren't we looking for cultural stuff?" Right? And she's like, "Nope. Like we're just going. We're walking on lines. We're counting what's there." Right? And this matters, right? It's it's a kind of anti-essentialist gesture, right? Um, but it matters that it's First Nations people doing it, right? It matters that you keep doing it, um, and it matters that you know this data is around for someone to consult. Um, when another development proposal comes up or when there, there's more environmental uh, kind of damage further down the road, um, this sort of stuff is going to matter a lot when they're trying to figure out like, okay, like there have been these huge forest fires. What kinds of animal habitat did we lose, right? Like what should we prioritize moving forward, right? So on the one hand, I was trying to call attention to the sort of uh, like romantic idea surrounding trail mapping and how um, that has been really important in a lot of places and in areas that have been subject to extensive clear cutting. It's just you aren't going to find any trails and you need to you still need to do something. Um, but I also thought it was really fun to think with because it's so configurable. It's something that like anybody can learn. Right. Um, there's this like in addition to this idea of trails and particular kinds of artifacts um, being seized on as, as a kind of uh, a sort of romantic anchor for knowledge claims made in and about um, indigenous landscapes. Um, it's, it, it's, it's anti-essentializing in the sense that, uh, you know, I'll, there's also this kind of presumption that uh, uh, you need someone with like this incredibly trained eye, like a, a kind of savant um, expert who can kind of guide you and, you know, find the, um, the subtlest, the, um, uh, uh, the, the subtlest signs of animal activity or what have you that'll kind of like lead you to some kind of hidden artifact, right? Um, and I mean, in one sense, Darlene is absolutely one of those people, but she's like, you know, I'm just one person. Like I need other people who I can train like, you know, quick and simply, like any idiot can get out there and gather data that's meaningful, right? And so I kind of wanted to put that sort of like rough and ready approach on an even plane with a more romantic approach to show not just how it actually functions, but to say that like, you know, even the sort of quick and dirty anti-romantic stuff can be very meaningful for, for folks because, you know, for mm -hmm. a lot of the young men that Darlene works with and young women, um, this is the first time that they've been out in the field. This is the first time that they've been to their house territories, right? The first time they've been to um, the, uh, uh, the places that they're, um, they and their ancestors from a particular house group are, are responsible for taking care of. Um, and for, for some of them, um, like that triggers like a kind of lifelong fascination with, with doing something on the land. Right. Mm. Um, and if you're only going to count the trails, if you're only going to count like the real experts and you're not going to pay attention to these folks who are like sometimes working in logging jobs, like once in a while volunteering, then you're going to be losing a lot of like, just in aggregate, you're going to be losing a lot of like these really, mm. really important encounters from which like this broad um, and, and uh, you know, frankly, like affectively quite rich knowledge base is mm. generated. And it's, that's the knowledge base that really supports um, First Nations um, governance. Mm. No, that's, that's, I think, worth highlighting. So thank you for talking us through it. Um, in a lot of ways, that question 
that answer really does some important myth busting that is useful in that particular context and speaks a bit more broadly. And I think this next question, my penultimate question, um, very much sort of is along the same lines, especially in the context of climate change um, and the nastier sides like the big forest fires. Mm-hmm. A word we are increasingly hearing um, in all sorts of places is resilience. And thankfully, I think also hearing critiques of it, critical interpretations of it, kind of going, hang on a second, let's think about how we're using this word and what it means and who's being subjected to it. In your research and in this particular context, what do you mean by the paradox of resilience? Right. Um paradox i i mean it's it it has these kind of contradictions built in a little bit um because on the one hand it seems very heroic um that you know you're either as an institution as a landscape um as a as an individual you are surviving in the face of uh challenges in the face of um, really significant disruptions and you are continuing to, I mean, the, the kind of technical definition within ecology is, you know, there's been a big shock, but like the system still functions like as a, as like the system is supposed to, right? So there's some kind of aggregate measure of like what the system is supposed to do. Um, at what, I mean, resilience is like a number, like at, at what, like at what level of X does it lose its resilience, right? You can measure that, right? If you've got kind of everything graphed out. And because I was hanging out with a lot of ecologists and a lot of modelers um, who fancied themselves communicators and, and policy-oriented uh, activists, uh, you know, I was kind of bathing in the discourse of resilience. And you know, I, I became fairly close with these people, but I also kind of uh, I, I sympathized with the other folks in town who were criticizing them, like folks who were like very suspicious of this kind of you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Um, kind of language around uh, kind of reframing environmental damage in, in kind of systemic terms. Um, but, the, the, you know, these people who are critical without having, you know, kind of steeped themselves in, in, in Foucault and what have you, like, uh, like some of the other uh, prominent um, critics of resilience theory. And, and I wanted to get a sense of, okay, like, what, what are people actually talking about in these conversations? Like, why does this, why does this language make people so angry? Like, why does it make, like, um, why does it make me so irritated? Um, and at first, you know, I got really, really drawn into, um, uh, say, like Melinda Cooper's writing on on resilience, um, and uh, you know, all these people who uh, had, you know, these kind of scathing critiques about how you know re- resilience is just embedded neoliberalism. It's uh, it's just you know, and the the latest phase of kind of responsibilization um, discourse. Um, it's a way of getting people to not, uh, you know, to not ask systemic questions. And it's like, well, actually, like the entire language of resilience is based around thinking extremely explicitly in terms of systems, kind of to the detriment of a focus on individual organisms. Like that's like that's the whole genesis of the language. Um, and so at first, I kind of went in for the sort of polemical critique, and then when I started writing a bit more, I. And, and kind of sharing some of my work, I realized like, okay, there's such a gulf between, you know, the, the anthropologists and the geographers who, who see, uh, you know, they, they can sniff out the, the kind of neoliberal undertones. 
Um, and the people who are um, like they're using this discourse in the field while also trying to do politically engaged work. And I found myself trying to write something that would be interesting um, and not totally infuriating to both of them. Um, and that's where I decided to just kind of slow down and say, like, OK, when people are talking about resilience, like like what's going on, like what kind of situation are they trying to reframe um, and what uh like very, very concretely, like what are they saying and why, right? Um, and that's where I started to realize that, you know, it, in some sense, they're trying to basically sh subtly reshape the language that people use to um, kind of navigate their way through the sorts of social dramas that you have as a precariously employed researcher in a small town, right? Where, I mean, you're there in the first place not just because you like to hang out to ski, but because you want your work to matter. Like you want your um, your scientific training, you want your experimental labor, you want it to contribute meaningfully to um, uh, kind of mitigating um, environmental damage from development. You want to like you want to do something about climate change. Like you care about this stuff, right? Um, and so to dismiss that kind of uh, labor, that sense of investment as, you know, these people are brainwashed by neoliberalism, it's just like, well, that's, it's not totally wrong, but it's, 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 it's very cynical. And it certainly doesn't help um, them kind of change their approach. Um, and it doesn't really tell us anything new about what they're doing, right? It's, it's just extremely reductive, even if like, ultimately, like, I, I do like agree that like, this discourse is, is pernicious. I mean, my, my son is, he just finished first grade and <laughs> he literally has a mark on his report card um, for how well he embodied um, his school's uh, value of resilience. And that was one of the higher marks that he got this year on his report card. So it's like I, this, this stuff is everywhere. Right. But again, like we dismiss it at our own peril. Um, and so what I found, uh, what, what I ultimately tried to kind of focus on in the book is that, uh, you know, researchers uh, who are coming um it's not just that, you know, they're from the branch of systems ecology that first brought resilience discourse, uh, I mean, that invented resilience discourse that like gave it a definition, gave it a number. Um, but a lot of these people um, have some kind of direct intellectual lineage to uh, uh, Buzz Halling, who's the ecologist who literally developed the concept, like who did most of his career at the University of British Columbia. So just like in a lot of other things, like they are like, they see themselves as uh, kind of global leaders in this, even though they work in this little town up in Canada, right? And so, in on the one sense, like they are, they're they're both uh, when they're getting in arguments about what resilience means in town. To some degree, I I, I could see that they're performing like self consciously performing for potential broader audiences because they write about this stuff and other people read this stuff, right? So in a way, like their kind of locally developed sense of kind of how resilience tracks as a concept, like this does reach broader audiences. Right. Um, and so what I ultimately decided to focus on is like, okay, when they, when they are kind of constantly shifting back and forth between talking about particular organisms like salmon or particular like systems like rivers, um, well, rivers and salmon, I guess, um, and themselves as both individuals and as members of a community, like if they're using resilience-based metaphors while constantly switching back and forth between the scales. Like what are they doing? Right. And I realized that like there was a kind of um, this, this, the paradox I think came in this kind of complimentary gesture that they thought that they were making towards their interlocutors who are these older scientists who are just like, 
this is this discourse is BS. Um, you are just trying to justify future layoffs. Um, this landscape is totally destroyed and you are not sufficiently angry. And they're like, no, 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 no. We're angry too, but we're just trying to be strategic. We're trying to focus. Um, they would see, like they were simultaneously trying to make their, their by, by advocate, by using models, sorry, to advocate for um, what were essentially um, uh, like strategies of kind of uh, uh, focusing resources on particular areas right, using like not just the language, but like the, the mathematics of, of systems ecology to focus on particular, uh, particularly precarious areas. Um, they were trying to make researchers feel like kind of more important, like, no, 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 like, even though there's only a few of us, even though we don't have a whole lot of money, like, like, we can be the kind of heroes that make this work, right, because the system's against us, but like, because we know how to focus our efforts, mm-hmm. right. And these folks were like, actually, no, you should just be complaining about how we need more money. <laughs> <laughs> or you should be complaining about like, you, you're, you've already given up. It's like, you need to complain about how we need more people. Mm. Right. And it's like, they're both right. You know, mm-hmm. like you do need more people, you do need more money. And in the meantime, you actually have to use really, you have to make really good use of the, uh, the money that you have. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you can imagine how, and this is, this is the closest I get in the, uh, in the book to framing a direct conflict between um, uh, First Nations researchers and white researchers, because again, there's there's a lot of really fantastic books about conflicts between researchers, between different kinds of epistemic communities. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really observe that, right? Like there had been more kind of direct um, conversation, but I part of what I wanted to signal in the book was like, kind of this, this sort of like um, this disconnect right? Where yeah. people are, they're living nearby, but they're, they're not actually directly in conversation unless there's a specific initiative. And then it's, there's frequent awkwardness. Like sometimes there's kind of uh-huh. accusations of tokenism that like the kind of the rules have already been figured out before guests are invited. Um, but you can imagine how uh, the sole First Nations participant in a meeting um, that has, you know, brought together like dozens of uh, white researchers um, to talk about how to prioritize research, uh, you can imagine how that lands with someone who has <laughs> is already worried, like is like okay, like I'm the main researcher for a totally separate governance system, and by the way, all of you guys are on my land, right? And the thing is, this guy is a, a consummate professional, um, and so he he's just like okay, I've dealt with this situation a bunch of times before. If I yell at him, it's not going to do anything, um, but it's. He's just like, okay, this is this is kind of a waste of my time <laughs> because, like, this is very obviously tokenistic that I'm being brought in as part of your very elaborate system, or like your mm-hmm. resign system, whereas like we're advocating for something totally different. But you know what? And, and so this is, and I'm sorry, this answer is going on very long. Um, <laughs> but the, the last thing I wanted to say is like, and and why it was I wanted to like just bring out a very particular kind of conflict, if I can even use that word. Is that, you know, in terms of like the day to day, like how someone who is a First Nations researcher who has built like they're not just doing research, like they've built a career in it. They've had to like manage all these gaps um, of funding. They've had to kind of like figure out what the research means um, at different stages, but they've kind of kept on doing it. Um, When these folks are in a kind of like when these folks are in a situation where they're essentially being insulted by well-meaning people, um, they. 
the demand, they don't know where these relationships will eventually go. And so as exciting as it is to kind of focus on situations in which people storm out and huff or in which like there's a kind of big divergence, often they're just like, well, that kind of sucked. Um, I guess I'll be back for the next meeting. Hopefully it's different. <laughs> right. And th- this kind of uh, weariness, um, but like a, where people don't fully detach. Um, I, I, I don't have like a, I didn't have a kind of big thing to say about that, but, but it's something I noticed in a lot of different settings where mm. people were kind of talking past each other, but there was still the sense of like, ah, well, we, I mean, something might still eventually work. And you know what? Like I'm still doing my own thing anyway. Mm. Right. And so that's why I wanted to say that like these kinds of things that are like very, like they're often very awkward. Like if you have a, a sense of how people actually, you know, how they actually feel about like the, the kind of level of conversation and, and what they've actually been doing on their own that's been ignored. Um, but I don't think it helps or I don't think it's anthropologically useful to make these things seem like situationally more dramatic than they actually are. Mm-hmm. Right. Because mm-hmm. so much of what it means to be a researcher in a small town is like managing these small tensions, these small possibilities and figuring out just how to keep moving. And it's very helpful to see what that actually looks like, um, given, you know, from your having spent a bunch of time in the small town. So thank you for bringing that knowledge um, out to the rest of us. Uh, for my final question, this book is, of course, done. It is out, um, which means you're no longer working on it. Is there anything you're working on next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview? Sure. And I'll try to do this quick because I know I've been kind of carrying on here. Um, I am in the, the finishing process or the finishing stages of um, editing a book um, called uh, um, uh, Unsettling STS um, or Unsettling Technoscience, uh, Theorizing Settler and Indigenous Science, Technology and Society um, with uh, uh, Candace uh, Callison, um, Diane Million and uh, Danielle Elliott. Um, this is a book that of mainly indigenous authors and uh, two indigenous editors um, that are uh, kind of taking a, a kind of critical indigenous studies to, uh, stance towards um, STS, science technology studies, to say like, okay, so what does this mean in the context of like uh, where indigenous studies wants to go? What is this? Is STS useful or not um, towards the goals of indigenous self-determination? Um, and people are doing, the, the contributors are doing some really interesting kind of uh, writing experiments, methodological uh, innovations. And we're really excited about that. And hopefully that's going to be coming out before too long once we finally kind of um, pull all of that together. Uh, mm. I'm also working on um, another book about British Columbia uh, about computer modeling um, that's mm. mainly focused on modeling techniques that people use within forestry and within, uh, within geology um, to look at how... Um, the work of the computer modelers and the kinds of social lives that they have within their institutions, working independently, how that's shifted over the past uh, 40 years as uh, basically the resource industries, both forestry and, uh, and mining have changed really, really dramatically. Um, and how uh, the work of uh, envisioning the futures of landscapes, um, you know, how that shapes the ways that people in these industries try to make moral claims about the management of uh, of, of minerals and, and, and the stewardship of, uh, of the earth. Um, and uh, in terms of active research, um, now that I'm in Singapore and it's a little bit more challenging to get to Northern Canada, it, it was never particularly easy, but now it's quite a bit harder. 
Um, I'm doing a fair amount of research in uh, Malaysia and Australia, actually. It's a continuation mm -hmm. of the, the ethnographic work that I've done um, around the uh, mining and mineral exploration industry. Um, and what I'm looking at here, um, as well as at field sites in the, the United States, is uh, the rare earth elements, um, mineral exploration and technology development uh, arena. Um, what people would gloss is like critical minerals, mm -hmm. just to see how um, different kinds of scientists or people who are living in uh, resource dependent communities or in communities that uh, have been kind of listed as sites of uh, potential development, uh, how they're uh, responding to the different kinds of, uh, kind of geopolitical ori reorientations that are happening around these minerals and around the um, like electric car batteries and other kinds of uh, uh, decarbonizing technologies that have been uh, promised. Um, and uh, that, that research is ongoing. Um, it's probably going to take me in much more of a collaborative direction than the research oh. I've done so far, but I'm really excited about it. That sounds very exciting, um, all of those projects. So thank you for the preview. And while you're, of course, off um, researching them, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing titled The Ends of Research, Indigenous and Settler Science After the War in the Woods, published by Duke University Press. Tom, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us. Thank you so much, Miranda. I really appreciate it. <laughs>